This morning we talked about the future. We talked about the future from Mark 13. The future in the sense of the coming destruction of Jerusalem, which was about a generation after Jesus was on the earth. And then a a future that Jesus was certain was coming, but that he couldn't tell us when it would come. Because only the Father would know that it was coming. And the instruction that he gives that the way we wait for that to happen is by doing those things that he's given us to do. Tonight, I want us to think about the future again, uh, from another perspective, from another angle, that I hope will uh, give us courage, uh, will build us up, will help us through uh, whatever is coming to us this week. The passage that I'd like us to look at is in Revelation chapter 7. So if you don't need Bibles there, I want to read the first eight verses for our scripture tonight. Revelation 7, 1 through 8. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to arm earth and sea, saying, Do not arm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the seal, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. When families get together for birthdays or holidays or anniversaries, weddings, someone usually gets a camera out and starts taking pictures. And when they do that, somebody invariably says, oh, don't take my picture, don't take my picture. And they they make a great effort to stay out of the pictures. And then there's, of course, the opposite, the one who can't resist the camera and has to be in every picture even if it's not really about that. Maybe you have some pictures like that and you're trying to trust the pictures at home. We take those pictures for the purpose of remembering. We want to remember the wedding or the anniversary. We want to remember the celebration and gathering of our family. So taking those pictures is really about remembering the past. We don't take those pictures so we can remember what we will look like five years from now when we celebrate that birthday or whatever. But the Bible, more particularly the book of Revelation, gives us some pictures of the future, of things that are yet to come. And it provides those pictures primarily as an encouragement, but also as an aid to teaching, as aids that will help God's people 
anticipate what is coming to their lives. God wanted the church at the end of the first century to know what was going to happen to them in the future. To know what was going to unfold around them. And he wanted them to know that so that he could prepare them for it. So that he could build them up so that he could encourage them. It's tempting to read the book of Revelation and think that doesn't apply to us or that's not intended for us and that has led many to some very strange interpretations and, and ideas from the book of Revelation. But the book of Re- Revelation with its pictures are relevant to us as a message for our lives, for our faith. Um, it can help us to live faithfully while we wait for Jesus to come. So tonight we're going to look at one of those pictures, and it's the one that we find in the second part of the seven chapters. So let's read again, beginning in verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. When this vision begins, John is given a vision of worship, a vision of worship in heaven. Look again at verses 9 through 12. When you study the book of Revelation, one of the things that kind of stands out at this point is that Chapter 7 interrupts the flow of thought that begins in 4 and goes through 8. John has seen Jesus, the Lamb, open six of the seven seals. And the judgment that God intends to pour out on those who persecute his people, his church. But before the seven seals are completed, before the seventh seal is opened, God makes some preparations. And he gives this picture of the future. The preparation that God makes involves the sealing of 144,000 which we read about in our reading. 144,000 is not a literal number, it's a symbolic number. And it is a symbol for wholeness. It is a symbol for completeness. The 12,000 from the 12 tribes are the people of God. Symbolic way of referring to the church. And the seal that they are given is the mark of God's ownership. But it is also a promise to the whole church 
that even though persecution is coming, and even though there will be suffering and even death, nothing is going to be allowed to hurt them spiritually. To borrow words from Paul, a way to summarize verses 1 through 8, is that nothing will separate them from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. They may be facing terrible difficulties, but by God's own mark, by his promise, nothing can take away their salvation. Nothing can take away their eternal home. The challenge, of course, is whether they or whether we will trust God. Every Christian in the Roman Empire had to decide for himself or for herself whether God's seal could be trusted. Could the seal be dependent on? We have to make that same decision too, don't we? We must decide for ourselves whether we will trust God's promises. So God, knowing that human hearts can be weak and frail, knowing that some might doubt and waver, does something that I think we can say is wonderfully kind. He lets them know, and now lets us know, what is going to happen in the future. He gives us a sneak look, a sneak peek at heaven. He lets faithful Christians see how everything is going to turn out at the end of time. I know there are some of us that don't like to be told the ending of the book before we read it. I know that there are some who don't want to know how the movie came out. When uh, when VCRs first were available, Sharon's dad bought one so that he could record the Arkansas games. And he went to church Sunday morning and he would tell people over and over, don't tell me the Arkansas score. And there was one lady who was from Arkansas who delighted in torment, and then she would tell him every week, which kind of ruined getting to see the game. Well, we don't want to know the score if we're going to, to watch it. But for the spiritual strength of the church, God gives John this picture, and he tells his servant to show it to the church. So in verses 1 through 8 of Revelation chapter 7, we have a picture of the church. We have a picture of the church on earth. And then in verses 9 through 17, we have a picture of the church as it will be in heaven. God wanted his people to see these pictures as a way of saying to them, I keep my promises. I will bring you through the suffering and the difficulties that are facing you. So look at the promises again. Look at the picture that John holds up, and it's really an incredible picture. In it, we don't see ten people. We don't see a thousand people. We don't see a million people. But John says that he sees a great multitude of people. A multitude of people that is so large, so vast, that it can't be counted. As we look at this picture, perhaps we can see in our mind's eye row after row after row after row of people, an incredible number of people. That might be a little bit hard for us to grasp, so maybe these will be of some help. If you go to a Navy home football game, you can sit in the midst of about, what, 54,000 people, 57,000 people. Or if you, like I would love to do, go to an Iowa home football game, uh, you can sit in the middle of 70,000 Hawkeye fans. Or if you're a Michigan fan, which I'm sure nobody here is, and you go to one of their games, you can sit with more than 105,000 people at once. 
But what John is seeing tells us that there are more people in the front row of that picture than all of those numbers combined. The number, again, is beyond counting. But not only are they beyond counting, but John says they come from everywhere. They come from every nation. They come from every tribe. They come from every people. They speak every language. They come from the whole earth. The church is everywhere. And it will be everywhere. So who are these people? Again, these are Christ's triumphant church. But look closer at the picture. What is this vast number of people, this triumphant church doing in this scene that John is allowed to see of the future? Well, John says they're standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb. Can you see that picture? Can you see the throne of God? Can you see the Lamb standing at the center? They stand in heaven in the presence of God, and John says this vast multitude is all dressed in white. White being the color of victory. White being the color of purity. And not only are they dressed in white, but they're celebrating. They carry palm branches, which celebrate victory and express joy. And in one voice, the multitude that cannot be numbered worships God and Jesus. But why do they worship them? Well, the answer is found in their worship. They declare salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In other words, we worship God because he is the author of our salvation. He delivers his people from their sin and through the, through the sacrifice of the Lamb on the cross. To our God and to the Lamb, we owe our salvation. We owe our hope of heaven. This generation that lived through that first century persecution and every faithful generation since, including our own, will stand together and will worship God and Christ for having saved us. And verse 11 and 12 tell us that all the citizens of heaven will join in that worship. So here's how John's first readers could have faith and how they could be encouraged. Through this vision that John shows them, they could see themselves. They could see themselves standing in the company of the redeemed, in the company of the saved. And they could see by their presence in that picture that God keeps his word, that God does save them. And brothers and sisters, we can know that. We can know by looking at this picture and seeing the truth that's revealed here about how things are going to work out in the end, that God did keep his promises, that his promise of salvation is one that we can depend on. And we can count on that no matter what comes into our life. No matter how challenging or how difficult life might become. John's vision also shows us how sweet it is to be in that worship. Verse 13 through 17. John, John's eyes are trying to take all of this in. And as he's taking all of it in, one of the elders approaches him, the elders that we meet in chapter 4 of Revelation. The elder asked John, these people in white robes, who are they? And where do they come from? And notice how quickly and humbly John answers. He, he doesn't presume to make a guess. 
He tells the elder, sir, you know. And the elder begins to explain. To the question of where did they come from, he says they came out of the Great Tribulation. For John and his readers, that means those who remain faithful in Rome's persecution. This is not talking about some far-off distant time of suffering, but the suffering and persecution that was going on at the end of the first century. To us it means every Christian who lives faithfully through the sorrow and the pain and the suffering and the defeat and the discouragements of life, and in some of the cases for some of our brethren, through the persecution and suffering that they experience. That is not something that has been absent from our time. The elder explains that they are those who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lord. These are those who were immersed into Christ, who were immersed into his death, burial, and resurrection, who in the moment of their immersion came in contact with the blood of Jesus and came out of baptism with water, pure and holy and without the state of sin. Because of their obedience and their faithfulness, they don't stand on the border of heaven. They don't stand at the gate of the New Jerusalem. They don't stand at the door of God's throne room. They stand immediately before him. They stand immediately in his presence. And John, the elder tells John, they serve him and they worship him without ceasing. I don't want to break anybody's heart, but heaven is not about endless fishing. It's not about endless golf or shopping or napping, or, or any other things that we sometimes say heaven is going to be like. Heaven is about being with God. And it is about worshiping God. And as these Christians are about to endure great suffering, persecution for their faith, here's this photograph, here's this picture that John can hold up and say, see, there we are. We got through this. We're in his presence and, and we're worshiping him. That's what this passage is about. The elder continues that God makes his dwelling place among his people. Do you remember the story in the Exodus of how the people of Israel were arranged as they traveled during the wilderness, that the, the, the tabernacle was in the very center of the camp because God was in his presence? And what does the Apostle John tell us about Jesus? tells us in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, or how about more accurately, tented among us, just as God had done in the Exodus. And John's vision is that when we're in heaven, God is going to be with us in our midst, just like he always has been. His glory is going to cover us like a tent. And Jesus promises that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied, and there will be no hunger, and there will be no thirst there. There will be no discomfort, there will be no hurt. And the sun, he says, won't beat on them. There will be no scorching heat in heaven. And I think I just heard one or two amens about that. According to John's Gospel, Jesus more than once promised to give living water that will, will last forever and end thirst. Here the Lamb, who is also the Good Shepherd, leads the flock of God, the people of God, to those springs of living water, to eternal life. He leads us 
for this eternity with the Father. And then a picture that, that I always find so moving, the very last part of this, is that John says, God with his own finger wipes away every tear from their eyes. Everything in this life that causes tears, death and disease and sin and loss and discouragement and defeat and injustice and separation and pain will all be destroyed on the day of judgment. The old order will pass away, John will say in chapter 20 and 21, and God will take us one by one and with his own finger will wipe away our tears. The church of John's day was facing a terrible persecution. Great suffering and sorrow was going to come upon them like a flood. But God sealed his people. He put his mark on them. And when the worst came upon them, if they had faith no larger than a mustard seed, he would make them Mormon conquerors. They would overcome. They would not be defeated. And the proof or the assurance that this would come to pass is this beautiful picture of our heavenly home and the heavenly celebration of all of God's faithful people before the throne. The great storm gone and forgotten forever. John's vision was intended for those first century Christians. If we want to understand this precious book, we need to see it through first century glasses. We need to understand it as they would have understood it. But it continues to speak to our hearts as well. We may not face the persecution that they did. We may not find soldiers at our door to arrest us and drag us out. We may not find people attacking us in the street because of our faith. Those things may not happen. But that doesn't mean that, that we get off lightly in this life. Some of us know the pain that comes from losing a spouse or a parent or a loved one. Others of us know the uncertainties that come when we move through life's transitions and changes. Some of us know the unbearable pain of having to watch the dearest people in our lives suffer. Some of us live with the uncertainty of keeping their job or finding another one. Some of us live with pain daily. And this list doesn't begin to include all the ways that Christians can experience tribulation and sorrow. But this passage gives us assurance. It tells us that there is every reason to go on loving and trusting and obeying God. For casting all our cares on Him. Because we're in that innumerable multitude that He cares for that he brought through the storm into his presence in heaven. Someday we will stand in God's presence and we will sing his praises and we will delight in his glory. So the very practical part of all of this is what's for them is be faithful. Be faithful unto death. Put your hope, your confidence in his promises. And when you really struggle and when things are really going hard, turn to chapter 7 and look at the picture and find yourself in it because you're there. Every faithful child of God is going to be there. And God strengthen us and help us to live for Him this week. The title of this lesson is A Picture of the Future for Today. And I hope that picture is bright and clear in your heart this week. Let's finish with our song of encouragement. If somebody in need of prayer tonight or needs to do God's will, then we invite you to come and stand and sing.